this is this is such a fascinating interview because I'm completely out of my like comfort zone because I'm like I'm loving I'm C- nerding I'm, I'm sorry I'm yeah nerding. I know I absolutely love Cienzo <laughs> you're <doing> great <laughs> I had her vegan day <laughs> I had my, my <laughs> she had the vegan day this is my day darn it A podcast about wellness. But what is wellness? I don't know. Don't you? No, that's why I'm here. Uh, Dr. Barney, do you know? Well, we have some ideas. (laughs) (laughs) Figure it out. Sure do. Welcome to another episode of Well What, a podcast where we engage Pacificans in conversations about their own personal wellness journey. We are Amzo. Amber. And Enzo. And we're your friendly neighborhood graduate assistants of recreation here at UOP. Our guest for today is Dr. Barney Jordan, staff psychologist. Previously, Dr. Barney spent 25 years in Boston, including time working at Harvard Medical School and MIT. His professional expertise include working with depression, anxiety, trauma, developmental and identity issues, addictions, chronic pain, and stress-related illness. Dr. Wow. Barney came to UOP <laughs> in 2017 and currently facilitates the assessment seminar and staff mindfulness meditation group, among other critical responsibilities, which we will get into later. Yeah. Some fun facts about mindfulness are that it's not religious. It develops empathy and self-awareness, enhances focus, can improve sleep, can reduce the perception of pain. And fun fact about Google, they offer their employees daily mindfulness sessions for really? free. Yeah. Really? Yeah, it's wild. So today we're going to take a little bit and learn about what Dr. Barney has to say about mindfulness and how it can improve overall wellness. Dr. Barney Jordan, we're excited to have you and thankful that you could join us this morning. I'm really glad to be here. Thank you. All right, so we're going to kick it off. So you jumped from a bachelor's in business administration to a PhD in clinical psychology, two areas of study that seem pretty disconnected, <laughs> or at least to me. As someone who doesn't know anything really about either of these fields. No, I think it is. They are disconnected. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to connect them for you. <laughs> what is the story here? Why business to well, this psychology? I'll tell you what a long, strange trip it's been. So I'm a native Stocktonian, and part of the business aspect was Uh, My father was a well-known contractor locally, and my brothers are still in business. And uh, as fate would have it, my name is plastered all over those trucks uh, roaming around San Joaquin Valley, and it's Barney Jordan Plumbing. And so as my father, um, I was the one groomed to take over that company, but uh, I had kind of an early, I guess, you know, crisis in my early 20s around what I really wanted to do with my life and it wasn't plumbing. And so after finishing a bachelor's in business at Santa Clara University, I uh, did a master's at Sacramento State, went off to uh, then Washington University in St. Louis for a PhD in clinical psychology, and then was later seduced by the bright lights of Harvard Medical School and ended up doing clinical training there and stayed on faculty for a few years. So, um, but how I like to link the business with the psychology, because when I actually came back to Stockton after all those years, as a sort of transitional gap year, I actually worked for my brother's plumbing company for a year, about five years ago as a plumber's helper. And I absolutely loved it. And so when I was kidding you before about this radio show, we actually, my nephew and I stumbled upon somebody who runs a radio station and they really pitched the idea of the two of us coming on and doing kind of a joint program on plumbing and psychology. And the theme was, (laughs) and the the theme, oh, the theme was going to be removing blockage and facilitating flow in both the visible and invisible worlds. And so although we haven't kind of found our way back to that program yet, it's still waiting for us. So there you are, business meets psychology. Yeah. I, I, I don't, I, I'm not insisting that you need to stop doing what you're doing at UOP by any means, but I, I don't think you can let that dream go away. That is, that is <laughs> that dream of a radio career of stopping blockage and facilitating flow is the greatest yeah. marketing campaign yeah. I've ever heard. I'll it's tell you what, though, in the, it, it, there's much more money to be made in the visible world of plumbing. So that's the only <laughs> caveat I, don't doubt I would it. answer. Yeah. I don't doubt it. <clears throat> oh, wow. So I love that you actually mentioned that you were a Stockton native because that flows yes. into our next question. Can you tell us a little bit about the big circle around the country from Stockton to the Midwest over to the Northeast and then back to your hometown? Um, and then just a, a little bit too, don't want to date you at all, 
However, I'm really interested for us being in Stockton, like just for the past year and a half, two years, because you're a Stockton native, I feel like a lot of students come here for school. What was it like growing up in Stockton? I don't, I think that's something that like Pacificans don't know too much about. There's a lot of native Stocktonians sure that go to UOP, but for me and Bam, I'm so curious what it was like, like as a child, kind of what was there to do in Stockton? What was that like? So a little part of a two-parter, your journey around the country and what was it like growing up in Stockton? I, you know, I'll speak to that for sure. And of course, it's it's so different for different folks, depending on, right, your upbringing in Stockton is a pretty diverse place. Um, and I will say, having come back after literally 35 years away, it has changed radically, right? So I'm somebody who grew up and uh, lived right by Victory Park. And so part of the joy of childhood for me was participating in Little League and being at the park a lot. I, I went to... Um, Annunciation for grammar school. And like a lot of us, my father, I'm the first person in my family to go to college. So my father was a plumber. And, you know, I, I always say by virtue of his blood, sweat, and tears, was I able to avail myself of a really quality education that started Annunciation, private Catholic school. And from there went to St. Mary's High School. And throughout, uh, you know, a huge aspect of my life was playing sports. So the physicality, I think, of being a, a plumber and and sort of being raised, you know, out doing physical work really was a part of my formation. And then that kind of kind of um, lent itself to athletics, so football, basketball, baseball. I played all three sports at, at St. Mary's. So that's where I'm for high school. And I will date myself because I was a Ram, graduated in 1977. No, I, uh, I, I first... didn't want to do it. You go ahead. Oh, I'm not. I'm sorry. <laughs> As Neil Young once said, I seem to be getting younger. My life's been funny that way. So I'm good. I came back, you know, I'm back here and uh, went to my 40-year high school reunion, my first year back about five years ago. And it's been a kick to reconnect with folks. I went to high school. And I'll tell you that part of the fun of the human adventure, right? You just kind of go and you come back. And never in my wildest dreams did I think I would land at UOP. So I came back and uh, got licensed. I was looking around. I already had a couple of job offers um, outside of stock and it paid extremely well. But I realized that money was not the most important thing. I really wanted to land in and serve in my local community. And I'll even say this because my director, she will laugh at me. When, when I was interviewing, maybe I shouldn't share this, but you know what? <laughs> Please. It's okay. We've been, we've, been, we've been told by Pam to keep to keep the reins in a little bit, but but you can go ahead and explore whatever you want to say. I'll let the horses run, people. <laughs> so you know what? I didn't even know what CAP stood for. And I thought it maybe it was some sort of addiction specialist. I've never really functioned in student counseling. I've been in private practice, worked in major medical schools for most of my life. So this is a radically different world. So I thought maybe it had something to do with addictions because that's such an issue on college campuses. And then it was also for a staff um, psychologist level two position. And you know, I knew I wasn't even a level one, so I couldn't possibly have been qualified. But you know, I, I interviewed and I love it that I didn't even have to leave the campus. They made an offer and here I am, it's about four and a half years later. And I continue to fall in love with it. I never thought that I would be um, just so into working with young folks like this, but I feel like it's just a critical time in their sort of development to make a huge impact and really radically shift the trajectory of their lives. And, and for me, I'll just say this, independent of all the great sort of intellectual content that young people are going to master, I feel like I have my finger on the pulse of this sort of invisible, so we're back to the other radio show, the invisible world. <laughs> of emotional relational intelligence that we know is just as significant than the more literal sort of body of knowledge you're going to master no matter what you're studying. And so I feel like that is a critical aspect of young people's development too. And we know within the context of COVID, right, how people have lost out on that critical social contact, right? The incidence of loneliness is epidemic and we know that loneliness will kill you. That's a risk factor for illness and disease like anything else. And so people are now kind of barricaded at home and really missing out on connection with friends and family and community. And that's a huge thing, right? So a lot of what I'm working on at CAPS with clients too is how to be, and this might be a segue to mindfulness too, it's all about connection. Mm. And one maybe easy way to think about it is it's both within oneself, right? How can we be present to the complexity of all that's happening inside of ourselves moment to moment, right? Can we be with that experience and without reacting to it? 
Can we actually make peace with everything that's going on inside of us? And to the extent that we're able to do that, I think we're much more available to the complexity of others without moving into kind of a judgmental stance or having to withdraw because we are in the process of being able to make peace with all of our thoughts and feelings and sensations. You're listening to Well What? A podcast about wellness. Dr. Barney, everything you just said, first off, I'm going to nerd out a little bit because I'm so excited <laughs> about today's interview. Uh, as a psych major and then practicing psych in, in my graduate program right now, um, yes, I want you to get into oh, all great. those things. And, <laughs> okay. I, I, and I'm so happy that you mentioned a couple of those things. First off, being the students <clears throat> and the and the the relationships and kind of your finger on the pulse and what's going on in the student community and just the clientele community of Pacific, but also I'll talk about CAPS. Um, I love that you said that, and that's going to segue really well too. not knowing what CAPS meant. That's okay, because honestly, I think that's really refreshing to hear from some students. <laughs> <clears throat> Dr. Barney did also mention it before. CAPS is Counseling and Psychological Services at UOP. Um, um, and uh, we'll talk about a little bit of information later and how to get in touch with CAPS. We have all that information right. uh, at Pacific CAPS is the social media handles that you can find first off. But CAPS, I think generally can be kind of a daunting place, especially not mm -hmm. they have nothing to do with the people who are in it, right? Uh, but just because of the idea, especially in college, this is a lot of time when people kind of first come to address their struggles with uh, either mental health or, or even just something as simple as mindfulness. You can't focus on your studies. You know, you have, you're wondering about your family being different, you know, uh, distances away, all these things. So uh, as someone who's dealt with CAPS personally, since attending UOP, I've worked with a psychiatrist. Um, I've been in group therapy sessions and I, it's been nothing but really inviting and professional, but I guess something that I, and it's been lovely working with you, but something I guess I, I want to ask is, what would you say to a student who's maybe tentative about communicating with CAPS about their available resources? Um, because I think from personal experience, but also conversations I have with my staff, it can be really daunting to start to address some of those things and think, oh, I need to go to CAPS. Maybe you think, oh, I'm crazy. Or maybe you think like, oh, you know, I just, I'll go to, I'll get a good night's sleep. I'll get over it tomorrow, but it's something that keeps going. So what oh, would hugely, you, yeah. you would say, yeah, maybe just to a student who is maybe tentative about addressing some of these things in their life. Well, thank you. Let me just, I'm going to start with one comment and come back around to that. But I think, you know, a huge aspect of our mission at CAPS, of course, is to reduce the stigma related to mental health issues, of course. And, and though, let me just add that, you know, outside of, let's say, under the umbrella of mental health, this just has to be with being human. Like that everybody in this life gets the opportunity to hurt in certain ways. Like we're, we're all gonna suffer. It's just a given in human existence. And to add to that, it's always gonna be much harder when we attempt to do that alone, right? So just, you know, one of the areas that I teach a lot about at CAPS now is trauma. And so one of the things I know is that we don't ever heal relational wounds in isolation, right? So a lot of the ways that people get hurt within say through the lens of attachment, which is one of the ways I look at psychotherapy because connection is so critical to our well-being, starting when we're young, but all the way through life, right? And then one of the things you see is when people hurt, there's just something about that that can be embarrassing for a lot of people, although they come by it completely honestly, when you actually trace it back, no fault of their own, right? We're born in certain families or we go through certain events that just kind of wound us. But then there's something in our personality where we don't want to be seen in our vulnerability. Although in our heart of hearts, we all know we are extremely vulnerable. So to me, it's just fascinating how the personality works. And there's almost like parts of our personality who, in a sense, take on the job of managing or protecting our vulnerability. Like we don't want to be seen in that. Of course, on some deeper level, we all need to be fully seen and cared for. So I think it's okay to be human. We hurt in different ways. And I think CAPS is a place that it, it, it ranges all the way from just maybe mild homesickness and helping people just navigate that adjustment to college life to, you know, sort of full out trauma. I definitely appreciate that answer. Um, <clears throat> and I think we'll get into more as we get into mindfulness, kind of all those other things that you wanted to touch on previously. And I'm so excited sure. for you to hear all of them. Um, <clears throat> 
getting a little bit more into the logistics just because I, I want everybody to know kind of specifically what you do and where you came from as well until we it, yeah. really dive into the mindfulness and the and the, how wellness relates. Um, as an aspiring psychologist, I am a little curious to know, um, you've worked at a myriad of different places. Right? Yeah. And, yes. and you, you have, and, and I'm wondering if you can kind of speak to the realm of at working in academia versus working in practice uh, and yeah. maybe some different settings you worked in and, and what are some unique attributes of each of those different settings? Sure. That's, I mean, that's a really great question. <laughs> yeah, but I'll tell you, you know, I'm just, I'm just going to be real with y'all. I think, you know, for a lot of us in the field and, and I'm not embarrassed to say this, I feel like that the sort of consistent thread throughout all the various contexts that I've worked in is really a fidelity to my own healing journey. Wow. And, the, and the willingness to sort of embark on that in, in just a real way. And on in, in some level, my mantra has been to show up for what shows up, right? We have to show up in life. And if I'm there's any- that. I'm stealing that. <laughs> oh, please. I, you know, I think we, we, all, we all pirate from everybody and it's all these thoughts are to be shared and, and to be made into your own and, and you will use as right in ways that benefit you and others, but really to show up for what shows up. And if we can't, to maybe get interested in what aspects of our personality are blocking a fuller immersion in our own presence, because that's how we really learn and grow and heal. So I think early on, I, you know, I, again, I was off the plumbing job. I didn't know what I was doing. And, uh, you know, I kind of slept walk through my undergrad, frankly, because business was not a call to me. And somehow I, I kind of rallied to get a 3.0 at Santa Clara, but I was, I couldn't have been more uninterested in my business undergrad, to be honest with you. And, you know, I was, in fact, the house I live in now, I built in my early 20s. So my father was a contractor and I was building houses and did all the plumbing and a lot of these houses out in this part of uh, Stockton. And um, so Sacramento, I, you know, I just kind of at one point realized, gosh, you got to do something that kind of is, is it more of a calling? I mean, I felt that in my early 20s, like more of a vocation and what would be a good use of my constellation of strengths and talents and gifts. And even though I didn't really know what they were myself. And here's the funny thing, psychology, I, I did not think of that yet as a field, right? To pursue professionally. I thought of it merely as a vehicle, maybe to better understand myself as a vehicle for self-exploration. And then maybe through that, I'd have a better sense of how to orient towards what I might do with my life. Now, what I didn't know is that in that exploration, I would absolutely fall in love with psychology, mm -hmm. right? So Sacramento State just has a really special place in my heart. It's where in some ways I kind of discovered myself, my intellect, and, and of course the power of connection that professors really took me under their wing and, and mentored me and, and said, we, we're gonna help you get into a PhD program. Frankly, I didn't even know what a PhD program was at that point. And so, but as I, as I traveled through, like ended up a school. So and when you don't know much, like a lot of, you know, UOP students too, first generation, nobody's gone to college. And like, that's a whole radical, radically different way to navigate the college experience. And we have all kinds of ways to support them too. Well, I was one of those folks. And so by the time I got to St. Louis, Missouri, um, to Washington University. And by the way, Washington University was a fabulous thing. But again, I was so naive. I thought it was somewhere north of Oregon. But here I am <laughs> driving my little truck to uh, St. Louis, Missouri. And just again, uh, just the willingness to kind of go on that adventure. And it was a five-year chapter for me and fell in love with it. But very, again, very academic. So I, I came from this more kind of radically kind of physical background of using one's body and all of a sudden I mean it's more sort of intellectualized world and I think you know a lot of my life frankly has been trying to bring those worlds together like this level of sort of abstraction and psychology can certainly drift in that direction but what we've seen in psychology really over the last 10-20 years is an increasing emphasis on the body and so one of my areas of specialization is doing trauma work and you're not really ever doing trauma work unless you are explicitly working with the body. So for myself, those worlds are gradually coming together. And of course, the pinnacle of sort of intellectual abstraction was landing at Harvard Medical School. <laughs> so, and that was you know like- Where uh, or what that was? It seems like there's a trend <laughs> of, you don't really, you don't know where Washington oh University God. is. You're not sure what CAPS is. Were you, were you sure what Harvard was? I, I'll be, I'll, I'm gonna be really honest with you. I, <laughs> I'd heard of Harvard, but I could not have told you where it was. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. But I, but, 
but I, you know, I bought, I bought a little pickup truck out when I left Sacramento state, brand new Ford Ranger slapped a camper shell in the back. I was just in like my mid twenties or whatever cost 6,100 brand new and drove that thing to St. Louis. Then five years later, trying to figure out where Harvard is, but I, I figured it out, <laughs> got there. And so that was a great, it was a two year clinical training program an internship and a postdoctoral fellowship, very rich, really brilliant people and uh, was offered a faculty appointment. And so I stayed on for, for several years, basically supervising in the internship program, which is what I do here at CAPS now. And then from that, you know, was able to kind of segue into a lot of different worlds. The big joke in, in Boston, we call, you know, Harvard is, is when you mention Harvard or reference Harvard is dropping the H-bomb. So you, once you drop <laughs> the H-bomb, <laughs> it's amazing how doors will open. I think the, the key is, is to use it well and not be too attached to the name and all of that. So it's just been a great way to open to new worlds without being too identified with it. But it was it was a great five year experience for sure, and really, my formation as psychologist uh, it was a critical place and experience. That's really awesome. I mean, I'm hearing really just the consistency of regardless of where you were, it was the experience, and it was the connections that you made, which, <clears throat> to me, I I'm I, I'm really in love with the idea of being open to like you know be be there for the experience of what comes next. I really love that idea. And it, it seems like it's been really successful for you. And it seems like whether you're working in practice or academia, it was the passion and the, the, the want to kind of pursue these things and work with these individuals and explore your own and do your own self-exploration that really led Absolutely. you. That's the through line that I'm getting. This is, this is such a fascinating interview because I'm completely out of my like comfort zone because I'm like, <laughs> I'm loving. I'm nerding. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm yeah, nerding. I know. I absolutely love Cienzo. <laughs> You're great. Sam <laughs> had her vegan day. <laughs> I had my. <laughs> she had the vegan day. This is my day. Darn it. I'm like I got <laughs> sociology and art, so this psychology is woof over my head. Uh, but you know, then I got to ask the questions of, hey, I don't know these words. You got to explain them to me. So <laughs> yes, absolutely. You know, in, in the Buddhist tradition, they say, "Don't know mind." best minds. So we want, you know, if, as we get into mindful, you know, the mindfulness topic, this quality of beginner's mind, right? There's a famous, there's a famous text way back in the 60s, Suzuki Roshi, Zen mind, beginner's mind, one of the classics. And basically in the beginner's mind, you know, many things are possible, but in the experts, just a few. So the idea that when we gain more experience, we often start to collapse it into these prefabricated categories and we're no longer open to new experience. But for me, like I would love to kind of bring those together, especially since I'm in my 60s now. And the question would be, can we continue to gain experience, sustain contact with beginner's mind and not have that eclipse our capacity for innocence, right? So to me, the best of both worlds is we are gaining training and experience, but we're not then collapsing it into this kind of specialization psychology. We continue to sustain contact with that edge of not knowing because that's where the creativity is and the spontaneity is. And that's where to be able to see as if through the eyes of a child. You're listening to Well What? A podcast about wellness. Speaking about um, psychotherapy and meditation. So you've, yes. I, I've seen you've been practicing at the interface of psychotherapy and meditation for over 30 years. This is longer than both Enzo and I have been alive. Wow. I know, I know. Um, can you explain what lies in the interface of psychotherapy and wellness? Wow, we do we have like five hours or <laughs> I knew I knew this one would be loaded. And oh, that's man. why I wanted to ask you. What's yeah. the first things that come to mind? That's why Enzo wrote the question. <laughs> yeah, so let, let me kind of see if I can find my way into that because it's it's such a multifaceted question and it's an incredibly rich intersection, right? So if we look at here's I'll just start in a really basic way. And so when people begin to meditate, right, let's say we're just learning how to rest in the breath as an anchor and begin to notice our, the flow of consciousness, those thoughts, feelings, sensations, but we're learning in a way to disidentify with that flow of consciousness and to really begin to um, loosen our identification with thought and really lessen our reactivity to experience. So for example, if I'm, if I'm guiding a meditation, working more, let's say primarily with thought, um, we're going to begin to notice pretty quickly how easily and quickly 
we are hijacked or kidnapped by thoughts, like all the time, right? Oh, so thoughts, I would say that, you know, the mind, the brain or the mind has a mind of its own. Even if I asked you to take five seconds and not think, you're not capable of it, right? So the mind has a mind of its own. The brain is going to continue to spew out chemicals, you know, sort of manifesting against the screen of consciousness, whether you want to think or not. So going back to most contemplative traditions, they would say something like, you know, the, the good news is um, you don't have to claim authorship for about half of your thoughts. And there are many days where I wouldn't want to. <laughs> so a lot of thoughts sort of show up, right? But the, the, the big difference with that is we have to be able to um, differentiate between thoughts that we might say are positive or wholesome and those that are negative and unwholesome. So I would say by virtue of practice, practicing meditation and mindfulness, we have more psychological space, mm -hmm. right? There's a heightened awareness that supports that discernment between wholesome thoughts and unwholesome thoughts. Because if we can make that discernment, we're going to catch those thoughts before they cross that threshold into spe speech and behavior, yep. right? Because our, our thoughts are driving that. More poetically, Emerson once said that the ancestor of every action is a thought. So let's say we're more actively kind of weeding our minds of those unwholesome thoughts. We're going to catch them at the gate. And basically, we're going to be saying and doing a lot less, let's say, hurtful things towards others but also towards ourselves oh my God. so we're, in a way we're, we're cleaning up our minds like we want to be engaging in in speech and behavior that is skillful in the sense that it's supporting the well-being and health of others not adding to the destruction in the world so that's you know mindfulness is learning to be right here right now often using the breath or the mantra a mantra as an anchor i use the breath myself and um and the one th one thing you first notice too and this is very humbling is that just giving how the incessant incessant chatter of the mind um once you start paying attention is how many of our thoughts have almost nothing to do with the present moment right so we are constantly drifting back into the past or lunging forward into the future and maybe more importantly to know that thoughts and feelings bundle and travel together. So it's not just a thought in isolation generally, it's gonna have an emotional charge to it. So let's say the past, people are dredging up uh, thoughts, memories of the past. There's often a feeling tone, for example, could be something like uh, regret or guilt or sadness, bittersweet nostalgia. The other side of the coin, and this is very common with uh, college students is really um, thinking a lot about the future. But it's not from sort of a, 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 a let's say, a, a practical and strategic planning place within the mind that makes sense because we all need to do that. It's more a thinking about the future that is saturated often with anxiety, fear, and worry. So that bundling, right? So here we are. I'll give you a, a great quote from Mark Twain that really captures this dynamic well how often we're kind of lost in these thoughts about the future that really are just mental abstractions gone awry. We're not really anchored in the present moment. It's just a form of catastrophizing in a way. Um, Mark Twain once said, you know, I've been through some pretty horrible things in my life, some of which actually happened, right? So you get that now, right? So just these scenes we, we kind of create in our own minds and then we, we project into an imaginary future. It's sort of like, you know, it's like the brushwork of fear. It just kind of takes over. And what we're looking at is, you know, this is maybe appropriate for UOP, is, um, is paper tigers that aren't real. We're these are mental constructions. And then here's the thing about meditation um, and just the nature of the mind and body. All you have to do is think those thoughts, right? That are saturated with these difficult emotions. And guess what? Back to the body, right? So we were talking earlier about the mind the intellect in the body. The body does not know the difference between reality and fantasy. So when you think about maybe the, the nervous system or even the immune system, there's interesting research on meditation, implications for health, and especially neuroscience these days. But let's say you're having all these like catastrophic thoughts. What's going to happen is, right, your body is going to read that as stressful and start mobilizing all those stress hormones. So cortisol, adrenaline, norepinephrine. So you're now activating the fight and flight response, yeah. right? Just by virtue of what's happening in your own mind. And it's a beautiful day out, 
yeah. right? And so over time, that's a lot of wear and tear on your body. Those are leading causes of inflammation, which we know is a major precursor to pretty much all disease states. So basically the mind can be an incredible ally or a foe, but it just seems that we have to be willing to train it to some extent, right? To be more consistently in the present moment. An interesting piece of research just for more longevity. Maybe I, I've gotten a little more interested as, as I've gotten slightly older here. Um, so what they found though, with people, long-term uh, meditators and also yoga practitioners, I would just add any of these sort of contemplative disciplines that kind of more consistently bring you into the present moment. And what that's doing just maybe on a physiological level, it's neutralizing the fight or flight response, right? It's interrupting that cycle of stress reactivity, putting you more in sort of a parasympathetic mode of rest and digest so your body can recover, it can heal, it can rest deeply. So of course there's gonna be huge medical implications over time. And so one of the things that researchers have discovered is that meditators have longer telomeres, which are basically genetic markers of how well you're aging. And to me, that makes absolute sense if you're constantly interrupting that stress reactivity, right? Your body's gonna age better. And it's probably no accident that I've noticed a lot of my friends who've been you know, longtime meditators or yoga practitioners, they actually look younger than your years. Now, I would say, not, not saying that's true of me, but I know when I started meditating in my early 20s, it really wasn't, it was more, I will be straight out with you all. It was way more for my sanity than my vanity. That was from a, a friend in Boston who was a weightlifter used to say that, but no, it's not. I kind of appreciate it more now in a way, but it's not, in no way was that the primary motivation to get involved with meditation practice. You're listening to Well What? A podcast about wellness. Here's the thing about meditation is, in a way, we're not getting involved with the content of our thoughts, which in a way is the doorway into our stories, our life stories. So uh, meditation is not so much interested in the content as much as the process of how the mind works. So once we notice we've been kidnapped by a thought, we don't unpack that thought get curious about where did it come from? When did I first have that thought? Why is my story going this way? We simply notice that thought and escort our attention back to the breath as a safe, neutral place to rest. Now, psychotherapy, on the other hand, is all about opening up that content. So in meditation, we simply ask what is happening. Here's the two easy ways to think about meditation. In any given moment, let's say you're actually doing some stillness practice. What's happening and can I be with it? Whatever it is, right? Without getting involved with the content, right? Because everything is arising and passing away. We all know that intellectually, everything is sort of impermanent. Thoughts arise and pass away. Emotions bubble up to the surface and dissolve. The body is constantly changing our sensations, right? So in a way, people who meditate for a while, what happens is it literally begins to sort of stretch you at the seams. Right, so on a somatic level, your body can actually be with more experience without reacting to it. So there's this great, she's deceased now, famous Zen teacher out of San Diego. Her name was Charlotte Joko Beck. And I love how she would use this acronym of the ABCs for meditation practice, simply meaning as you practice, you develop a bigger container, right? You can actually be with more of your experience, more psychological space, the body can tolerate more of all that comes with the human body, sensation, urges, impulses, but we're less inclined to react and act out from that experience because we're learning to moment by moment make peace with whatever's happening in that moment. And just maybe as an aside for what it's worth, if you go back to these ancient languages of Sanskrit and Pali, it's actually a, a mistranslation to call it mindfulness a more accurate translation. And anybody who meditates was going to realize this experientially pretty quickly. A better term is bodyfulness. And that's closer to the actual original languages because you become super aware of the quality with which you inhabit your body, how comfortable you are in your own skin. And meditation is a way to continually make peace with that experience. So we're not grinding against it so much. We're learning to, as I often say, how to align versus grind, right? Because whatever we can't be with 
whatever we can't be with is going to continue to present itself. And it's an opportunity to kind of soften into that, to be in our body with difficult sensation, right? And, and begin to make peace with it. And so if you look at something like all these, you know, different wisdom traditions, or even an organization like AA, they have these great little, you know, just wise sayings. Yeah. So one of that, one of their sayings is, um, whatever you most resist will persist. Whatever you most resist will persist. So in a way you can think of meditation as sort of internal resistance training. I also like to work out, you know, physically with weights. So I think of like the, the internal back to the invisible dimension is learning to actually be with that which I most resist. So let's say it might be, um, you know, for a lot of people, I feel like, you know, a lot of my work at, at Pacific is, is really um, helping people with unfelt sadness that they've been packing around for years, mm-hmm. right? So there's no, we know there's no right or wrong way to feel, but we do have really strongly conditioned tendencies to want to sort of privilege some feelings and dismiss others. Lock it up. Right? <laughs> so we got it. Yeah. And it, back to AA, you got to feel it to heal it. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like, you know, as a therapist, it's often sort of meeting people where they are and in some ways kind of taking them both where they don't want to go, but they also don't know how to go there. So back to that trauma literature I was referencing earlier, one thing we know that trauma gets stored in or encoded in the body. It is literally located in the body. And here's an easy way to think about that. When, when people, let's say we're young and we go through something traumatic. And that's, you know, that's a huge gamut, let's say emotional, physical, sexual abuse, or neglect. Like people often miss the invisible side of abuse. So a, a, a really super easy way to think about it is um, in terms of the former that I just mentioned, the bad things that can happen, but also neglect the good things that didn't happen, right? So all the ways we need unconditional presence and, and just connection and love, or human beings don't really develop. Right, so all the ways that these experiences contribute to trauma, and when we're when we're young, we don't have the sort of psychological or somatic capacity to be with overwhelming feelings. Like we literally back to what I said earlier, that we are inherently relational beings, so we can't problem solve in isolation. So let's say a child doesn't have somebody who can kind of be present right? Offer their presence and all that a child needs in terms of holding and that's psychological holding, comforting words, soothing words, but also touch. But that does is soothe the body, back to bodyfulness. So a child who's in a state of overwhelm, they are now exceeding their capacity for what they can bear. It's too much feeling, it's overload. They need a safe harbor, so to speak, in terms of a relationship to pull into, to get comfort and soothing and support, to calm down their nervous system, to render those feelings bearable and to help the child develop in, in effect a voca- an emotional vocabulary, right? Because all they know is their, their body is, is in a state of fight or flight, right? The body is screaming, but they may or may not have words to actually express their experience. So that takes a super attuned parent who's willing to be present and then actively solicit for what's going on in the inner life of a child, right? So they can actually feel that it's okay to feel sad or lonely, right? Then people can connect that with language and express it through words, not now buried alive, right? Because in some ways the parents are shaping what's okay or not. And of course for kids, that's survival. So let's say a parent has buried all their sadness because they also had, let's say, a difficult life for whatever reason. So whatever we haven't dealt, whatever we cannot be present to in ourselves, we're not going to be able to be present in somebody else. It's going to trigger us. And so when you hear people say, oh, come on, you don't really feel like that, or get over it, let me buy you a drink, like all the subtle and not so subtle ways people are trying to, right, push you out of feelings that you come by honestly. But this conversation is how devastating that can be for a young child because it is occurring within the context of personality development, mm-hmm. right? So in some ways, the parent is almost training them that you know these feelings are not acceptable here, right? You need to bury sadness or loneliness or shame, right? So that gets buried. And then what happens is, in a sense, other parts of the personality go to work 
to manage those vulnerable feelings, to make sure they're never seen. And it's almost like there's like an internal surveillance system that develops that's constantly sort of scanning the environment for people in situations to avoid those painful feelings from getting triggered, right? So that's a lot of what I'm doing in psychotherapy is kind of almost time traveling back to places in the body that are in a sense, emotionally frozen. And people will literally talk about kind of dead zones in their body because our bodies really are meant to feel and feel deeply. And so when we're disconnected from our bodies because of hard stuff we've gone through, there are often areas of the body that can feel emotionally frozen or dead, right? And just like with, let's say, you know, frozen ice, we need to kind of get to a place where we're helping thaw those frozen places out. And of course, one of the ways we do that is through um, the un unconditional presence and warmth of both, I would say, both the therapist and the client's true self. Right. If we can breathe this kind of warm, loving attention and, and really direct it in a precise way to these places that are emotionally frozen, of course, they will begin to thaw out. And of course, when ice thaws out, liquid begins to flow. Right. And so a lot of what I'm doing, my interns used to all like, why are people crying so much in your office? What are you doing to them? <laughs> you know, well, I, I'm, hel I'm helping them feel what has gone unfelt. So but you know, of course, you know, so they can release it. And then we can get emotional thawing and then we can kind of shift their personality functioning so those parts that were constantly doing surveillance work so to avoid getting sad can just relax and do something else and inevitably it's a pretty consistent report that people say they just have a they experience a new sort of lightness of being in their body they inhabit their bodies radically differently when we're able to excavate that old pain because that old pain is like a backseat driver Whatever we're doing consciously, it's in the background sort of yep. running the show, right? It's why a lot of people have such strong uh, avoidant tendencies. There's, there's parts of the personality that are avoiding things so that doesn't get triggered. Does that all make sense? Oh, it, yeah, it I mean, makes too much sense. And I think that's- Okay. <laughs> well, that's the, and that's, no, that's great. That, because that's the content part. So in, psychother in psychotherapy, in contrast to meditation, we're really taking a deep dive into all the content and all the story. Like we really want to witness every detail and then help them release that pain and also get out of them any sort of distorted belief systems that got internalized by virtue of that pain, right? So we're very involved with the content, right? And it's very personal, whereas meditation... I'll just kind of toggle back and forth. It's more about the universal aspects of the mind. It's less about the more subjective personal experience. So meditation is, okay, this is how the mind works, regardless of content or one's personal history. Psychotherapy, in contrast, is about really back to plumbing, really dredging up all of that personal history. Right? <laughs> and so psychotherapy is going to, you know, inevitably people are going to learn to be kind of less constricted and more expressive right? Because all that stuff that's been compacted is freed up. And so they're in contact with more of who they are. There's more range of motion emotionally and otherwise. So they just feel freer to express who they are, to actually be who they are. So that's the expressive dimension. Whereas meditation, I would say, highlights more the uh, becoming less reactive dimension, mm -hmm. right? So it's almost like a Venn diagram. You put those together and it's a pretty powerful combo package. Because if you're actually becoming, let's say, less reactive via meditation practice, of course, that's going to support becoming more expressive. You're listening to Well What? A podcast about wellness. We got a call one time from MIT. And mm -hmm. uh, so they, they called the Buddhist Center. They want somebody to come start teaching classes. And the teachers are so busy. Yeah. They weren't going to do it. I said, Barney, why don't you go do that? I'm like, what? That. I don't know about this, but lo and be this is how life is. Show up for what shows up. Yeah. And so I just I kind of accessed some courage and got some notes together. And that became a 10-year run. And it's, and it's really where I kind of learned how to teach because you know, when you have a lot of really smart people, you got to kind of pull it together. But back to where I started this program is just because you're let's say intellectually evolved does not mean that you have access to emotional relational intelligence. So that's what I kind of learned at MIT. Somebody can be brilliant, but also like in the words of James Joyce, living a short distance from their body. Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. And if you're not in your body, right, you're not aware of feeling. 
how to connect with feeling, how to express with feeling. So in a way, meditation was a perfect practice to help all these evolved intellects actually come back into their body more, right? And it just became just a fun thing. I did it for 10 years with students, staff, faculty, and really grew with it. But my, my, I'll tell you my favorite joke about MIT because these people are so smart, folks. I couldn't believe here I was right, right off the plumbing, right off the plumbing site. Just makes sense. Yeah, so now I'm at MIT, but I'll tell you my, my best line is, you know, the only thing I could possibly be qualified to teach about at MIT is on the space between thoughts. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> wow, that's, that's, that's. that's these people, these people have big thoughts. Yeah, <laughs> premium content here folks these people have big thoughts so that's i think you have to have some humor in all this too in terms of well-being and the other thing i used i used to say at harvard too that somehow i was qualified to teach at harvard although god knows i could have never gotten in so you know you just got to be able to kind of roll with this stuff and and have some fun along the way and, and you know hold yourself lightly and i think not be identified with any notions of who we think we are in fact i would say from any the perspective of any contemplative tradition um, who we think we are is mostly a case of mistaken identity, that we are not our thoughts. I think we were talking about this before when Pam was with us, that, you know, our thoughts, right, they just kind of come and go. I don't take them too seriously. I think there's a huge distinction between using our brain in the service of intentional conscious thought versus all this kind of chronic background noise that's always running through the brain, right? So there's a big difference between those two. Fascinating. I think we have about two more questions. Um, yeah. 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 Absolutely. I think absolutely. we're just warming up. I, I know. Woof. Everybody lock in, put your seatbelts on because we're going for a ride that's going to last maybe a couple more hours. Oh, um, oh if uh, if only Dr. Barney had more time. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the, uh, just so much. I wish we could, I really wish we did have more time, honestly. Um, my next question, I'm really excited to hear your answer and all these. Um, I study some experience working with internal family systems therapy. And oh, don't get me going. I know. I, know, I can scared. already tell. Oh, 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 oh. We're not, we're not gonna, yeah, we're not going to go too hard at this. I'm going to really okay. reveal this. You, we're going to have 90 seconds to answer this question. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're uh, I can feel my parts rubbing up already. <laughs> no, this is good. This is good. So, um, so at, it's not so much about internal family systems therapy, but that suggests that there's a strong component in one's family or their support system. And I think that's something that, especially in college as, as a student, you might have somebody who's halfway across the, um, the country. I know at UOP, we have a lot of international students. They could be halfway across the world. Um, so yeah. just, I'm interested what to what you feel like, and you've spoken about it before. So some of it might be um, a little reiterating of, of things you said, but I wanna focus specifically in this question on the role of the collective. And why you think, I think it obviously proves more effective, the collective in achieving and maintaining overall wellness. The collective meaning your support system, your family, your roommates, the people that you interact with, which you've already stated is so important. Um, in, in, in other words, why is social interaction and connectedness so important? Okay, let me see if I can come at that a couple of different ways. Maybe just more almost in a poetic sense that we we are not meant to be lone rangers like nobody makes it very far in life operating as a lone ranger and frankly when people are, are moving in that sort of way of a more isolated existence and often it's an attempt or strategy to problem solve woundedness it just gets worse right so again we're, we're innately relational beings and even like all this great you know we could spend two hours just talking about the last 20 30 years of research in modern neuroscience and its implications for both meditation and psychotherapy. But you know, one obvious finding is that we built into our brain is the deep capacity for empathy and compassion. We actually have mirror neurons in our brain. We are wired for connection, for empathy, for compassion. And we all know that feeling of, this is Dan Siegel, this is a brilliant, he's a neuroscience researcher down at UCLA, also a longtime meditator. And the way he kind of coined this term that the importance of feeling felt Right, to feel, it's one thing to be intellectually connecting with somebody, but emotionally, we all know that experience more through our body of feeling felt somebody. And it's really comes from the quality of their presence. And that's a relational field that we sort of feel into. It's not intellectual, 
right? So we all need to kind of feel felt, to feel connected in that way. Or just think about times maybe for anybody, yourselves or people who are listening in on this, times you have felt really alone and notice how the mind doesn't always incline in the most positive directions, yeah. right? We actually need people to mirror us. We never just went back to like child development and how critical that, that mirroring is for the witnessing. So people actually come to know themselves through the mirror, the unconditional presence and mirroring of their mother's eyes or whoever the primary caretaker is. I would offer to you that we never, we don't need it to the same degree, but because we're relational beings, we never lose that need to be witnessed, to be fully seen. Mm -hmm. So that's gonna be critically important. And I think it's been certainly magnified within the context of COVID, how important that is, but right. So social contact, whatever form, familial, it doesn't matter what form, groups, organizations, friends, it's just a really, really, really critical thing. But I'd also add, I'm, I'm a pretty strong introvert, that people experience social support differently. Like, so for myself as an introvert, you know, I, I would kid people I live here on Turtle Island. So, you know, I need to, life is so, <laughs> life is so short, we must move very slowly here on Turtle Island. So I, I love that I'm an introvert. I, I kind of move slow so I can kind of savor my life. And I need large doses of solitude for my personality to refuel, whereas extroverts really operating really differently. So people need to know themselves well, right? To kind of function well in the world. And the other dimension of the internal family dimension of this is just that. We have an external family, the importance of friends and community and all that. But how interesting that we also have, and you know, whatever your thoughts about this might be, we have an internal family. To me, this is just literal. We have many different parts of us and a lot of voices that we carry along, especially critical voices are actually downloads from our family of origin. So the person who developed um, internal family systems, interestingly enough, started as one of the pioneer uh, family therapist workers and wrote actually one of the seminal textbooks on just family therapy, actually working concretely with an actual family. And then he, as he was doing that, he realized, wow, people are carrying their whole family inside themselves. And he just kind of stumbled upon that. So I work from this model of the mind that is really sort of a multiplicity model. And, and I know even for myself as conditions and contingencies change, I can feel these shifts in my personality. Like I have blue collar friends and then I can feel a little sort of shift that, okay, this is that part and intellectual friends, maybe a couple pirate friends. You know, I just have a whole... <laughs> I got, I got different tribes I like to run with and it just pulls for different dimensions of my being. And I like all of them to get some attention. So that's one easy way to think about it. Just the, the kind of shape shifting that occurs within your own personality. It's almost like a kaleidoscope. As those conditions change, you change and you're almost looking out through a different lens, right? So when I'm doing psychotherapy through that model, I just kind of take people inside and really help them to get to know themselves. And I, when I say themselves, I mean it literally in terms of plural. plural. Like we have a multiplicity of selves inside. And unfortunately, what a lot of people do is they kind of set up camp and solidify around one particular part that is not even who they are. And a lot of people, frankly, have you know, this whole notion of the imposter syndrome, which is more of a pop psych way of describing a, an almost sort of a false self that is like a puppet part trying to mimic the real self. Because on some level, there's some buried shame and people don't feel like they can just fully settle into and inhabit their body, like be anchored and rooted in who they really are and trust that. So they have, and they can feel that subtle disconnect, like a part kind of mouthing the right words in a way, but not really authentically anchored in self. What's that? Making it till you're making it. That's yeah. what it feels like at times. Yeah. And that's, that's a very common thing. And you can almost, yeah. Until you make it. Yeah. And you can almost always trace it back to shame. Like people don't feel like they can just be who they are and trust that that is enough. Yeah. Right. So that, that motif or belief system that I'm not enough. And so I have to overcompensate. And so that drives a lot of perfectionism and this sort of imposter syndrome that people can't just kind of relax into the truth of who they are. And part of that, back to whether it's internal family systems or any form of therapy, we got to get back to what's been stored away that is driving that part that needs, needs to kind of fake it till we make it. Because the other side of that is they never really make it. Exactly. And the more, right, the more, the more we fake it, right, it's like that's what gets reinforced 
And then people feel like the only way they can actually make it is by keep on faking it. Yep. And, and there's always there's always a voice in there that says something to the effect that if you knew me the way I know me, it would all go up in flames, right? So we have to get to that voice yep. to be able to relax that part. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think we'll we'll end with our final question being about right. Pacific. Um, so mindful mindful Pacific is a project you've been working on here, at Pacific. Can you tell us what it is and why it's so critical for the Pacific community? So it's you know it's a work in progress. I love it. It's a forum, right? It's a space for people to come, and it doesn't matter. I've had people who are longtime meditators who meditate for an hour at a time, and I have people who come who say they couldn't possibly be still for even five minutes. And so to me, it's, it's, it's not a one size fits all. It's like, a I love it. It's kind of a, it's morphed into more of a drop-in group. So whoever, you know, whoever shows, I can kind of shape shift and just to meet the needs of that particular group. In fact, it meets tonight. It meets on Tuesday nights at five o'clock. And so, but I always do some systematic um, training, guided meditation training. And that can be very brief, maybe 10, 15 minutes, because I don't want to overwhelm people. And I always kind of take a poll to see where people are at and, and what might feel like, you know, too much or, or too little for that matter. And we just do a very brief meditation. We answer questions and really support them also in the practice of mindfulness in daily life. So it's not just, oh, I'm going to get still for let's say five or 15 minutes, check the box and done, then go back on autopilot and fall asleep. <laughs> right? We have the invitation to kind of be present in every moment. And I think one of the things that, again, what meditation brings us into is it really speaks to and, and helps you access the quality with which you play host to your own experience. Like how good of a host you are to your inner complexity or all these different parts I was alluding to through IFS, right? Because if we're not at peace inside, right, we're not going to find peace elsewhere. You know, so I think there's just a way of this coming more fully into this moment, coming out of all the thoughts about the past or the future, learning how to inhabit our body more fully with attention and care that allows us to really be more present moment to moment and find peace in that moment. Because I think happiness is really only going to be found in the now. It's not gonna be found in some arbitrary abstract future moment that we overburden with all these notions. Well, I'm going to be happy when I graduate, when I get my first job. I mean, I've, I've been a therapist for over 30 years, right? When I get married and then all of a sudden, you know, all these years of being a therapist, people in their 40s, well, maybe when I get divorced, maybe when I get tired, <laughs> right? maybe, oh. oh, maybe, maybe when I have that, you know, near death experience or terminal diagnosis, you know, maybe I'll, I'll wake up when I'm dead. <laughs> so, you know, it's just amazing the, the human propensity to kind of postpone waking up and fully coming into just this moment. Wow. Dr. Barney, this has been an incredible conversation. I've been, and I, and I won't speak for Bam. <laughs> I'm sure Bam feels the same way, but uh, it has been such a privilege to talk to you today and to get to know you yeah. and, to, and to listen to your knowledge and vast experience from these different corners of the mind that I think you really, you really in a good way oversimplified a lot of the a lot of the feelings that sometimes feel so trapping and feel so, you know, kind of overwhelming in one's mind and yeah. the explanation of the hormones and the transmitters and the just kind of boxes that we keep in our own brains, I thought yeah. was very, very telling and very, very um, well said. So I have thank to you. ask at this point, thank you. Yes. Do you have anything you'd like to leave with the Pacific community? Any lasting words? Sure. And then uh, I'll give some information on CAPS that was that was carefully vetted by Pam. So we're saying all right. <laughs> <laughs> but That's good. Like sure. So I'll say, you know, again, as a native Stocktonian, I, I referenced St. Mary's High School. So Catholic High School locally graduated. Their patron saint is uh, Francis de Sales. And, and one of the sayings is, that's really quite famous, is be who you are and be that well. And I think that perfectly speaks to, right, the whole motif of to be well. Yep. And, and, and in terms of CAPS, too, if you need any help and kind of, you know, being who you are more fully or really getting help in training around practice that will support well-being, we do all of that. And we love to do it. I mean, I would say it's our passion. I mean, everybody at CAPS is really doing what they're meant to do. 
-hmm. it truly comes across in your dialogue that you are doing what you are meant to do. Dr. Barney Jordan, again, staff psychologist number two. Level two, level two. Level two, as as he mentioned earlier. He's number one in our hearts. Number one in our hearts. Number level two in the caps and UOP pay scale. Thank you so much. Some other points. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. You can go online to go.pacific.edu or students.pulse.pacific.edu forward slash X. 4867.html for students. We're really spelling it out oh, for you here. Uh, they can also be reached at 209 946 2315. That's 24 hour therapeutic support. At, oh, and 24 hour <laughs> therapeutic support is available at 209 946 2315 and extension three. You sound like an infomercial. I know, absolutely. <laughs> well, we just want to get this information out. Yes. Um, so so we're excited to, to do that as well. Uh, and any folks who are interested in requesting outreach from CAPS can also email caps at pacific.edu mm-hmm. and they'll get back uh, with the appropriate link and request form. And then to finalize, we mentioned earlier at Pacific CAPS, um, exactly as it sounds on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. We can find CAPS those ways as well. Yes. I've worked with many CAPS professionals, uh, mm-hmm. only Dr. Barney today, but he is again, <laughs> uh, just as the rest, a star, uh, obviously passionate about his subject matter mm-hmm. and his area of study. And uh, it's been a blast today. Thank yeah. you, sir. And you will hear right. us next episode. Thank you again. <laughs> okay. Thank you all. All right. Be well. Today.